just a brief introduction. Uh, the, the pattern of most letters in the New Testament uh, is there's a sort of a structure where it goes something like this, uh, theology, 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 and then there's a moment where it says therefore or a kind of a pivot and then it starts saying do this, do this, do that, don't do this. Uh, and so uh, there's a fra- framework or a foundation of context uh, and important information uh, and theology and doctrine and truths, eternal truths, followed then by a suite of implications uh, of what these important uh, truths should then look like in action. And the book of Hebrews is no different in that regard. In fact, chapter 13, which I've already read most of, contains as many direct instructions in a single chapter as all of chapters 1 to 11 do combined. Uh, And so uh, there's this extreme case of this very heavy cerebral sort of work that's going on in Hebrews, followed by then just a suite of instructions, uh, which we get to come to today. And we've done a lot of heavy lifting up until this point. But uh, I am going to bring us back just for a moment uh, into chapter 12, verses 14 to 17. This is sort of our bridge uh, from uh, all that's gone before uh, into chapter 13. It says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now that Esau story, I'll try to explain a little bit later. But first, let's look just at verses 14 and 15, because each of these verses contain what appear to be contradictory statements. So we are going to do a little bit of headwork before we get into the legwork. Uh, verse 14 says, strive for peace with everyone, and specifically strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, Uh, which on face value seems to indicate that if we just strive in the right direction and work hard enough, we might be able to get holy enough to gain access to God, which would be a contradiction in terms of the rest of the argument of Hebrews, which says that holiness, our holiness is a thing uh, achieved by Christ alone, not a thing that we can achieve for ourselves. Also in verse 15, it says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Well, that would seem to indicate that God's grace only extends so far down and that we have to do the rest of the work to obtain his outstretched arm. Uh, And so verse 14 seems to be a contradiction in terms of the rest of Hebrews and verse 15 feels like a contradiction of terms. Uh, How can you call it grace if you have to work to obtain it? What's a gift if you have to earn it? Uh, And so let's just uh, look into these a little bit because these bring us to the heart uh, of the gospel but also how it applies uh, in our life. First, First verse 14. See, most of Hebrews has been building itself on the basis that God is holy, he is pure and untouchable. And that we begin from a place of sinfulness, that is, uh, where God is pure, we are impure. And where he is holy, we are unworthy. 
Uh, and yet, again, building uh, the Hebrews itself has been building this argument uh, that God in his mercy, despite our sin, has continued to extend uh, the olive branch and to keep the lines of communication open between us. So in ancient times, God ordained this ritual practice, uh, which involved a clan of priests acting as mediators between God and his people. But these priests, they were imperfect. Uh, and, uh, and these imperfect priests would fearfully sacrifice animals for their own sins and for the sins of the people, so that just one priest... And just on one day of the year, might be able to approach with fear the holiest part of the temple where otherwise no one ever was allowed to go. And so uh, we have God in his mercy sort of creating a way where a priest can mediate for people, but it's still, uh, there's this... There's this imperfect union between God and mankind. And then the argument of Hebrews was that while this, this old covenant regime genuinely represented God's mercy and grace, uh, it wasn't quite real. Uh, the temple uh, was just a shadow and an image of God's true kingdom. And the blood of goats and bulls, while, uh, while these things viscerally demonstrate the cost of sin... They can't really cover up or resolve the problem of human sin, of your own sin. And God's people were still thoroughly at God's mercy as to whether or not he would accept their sacrifices. And in fact, you read the Old Testament and quite often God says, I do not accept your sacrifices. Uh, But the author of Hebrews powerfully points out that now that Jesus has come, everything is different. Jesus is the sacrifice, not a symbolic sacrifice, a true sacrifice, perfectly covering the sins of the whole world. And also, Jesus is the priest, not a sinful priest who will one day die, but a perfect, everlasting priest with no beginning or end, who can stand in heaven, the true temple, and vouch for us because he's covered for us. But all of this, whether it's the old covenant regime of sacrifices or the new covenant era of Christ, it leaves us very clearly in the knowledge that the holiness without which no one will see the Lord is not a thing that can be earned by striving. Clearly not. That that holiness that we must possess to see God can only be granted to us as a gift from Jesus Christ himself. So what on earth? What does it mean to strive for this holiness and why would you? Well, having done my best to amplify the problem, the answer is actually quite simple. I really think it is. Uh, I'll give you an illustration. My first ever overseas trip when uh, I I think I was 21 years of age, I went to Thailand. Uh, And I went with a church group and we were volunteering uh, with a ministry there and we were there for eight weeks. And in preparation for our time, we learned a little bit of the language. In the scheme of things, it was pretty tokenistic language stuff. Uh, I don't even remember hello or thank you, for crying out loud. Uh, But I do remember two phrases. I remember my Ben Rye, or I'll say that with an Australian accent, um, um, my Ben Rye, which means uh, never mind, Uh, which doesn't just mean, you know, never mind, but it's like a a way of life in Thailand. It's this easygoing, never mind, it's the Australian equivalent of no worries, mate. So I remember that, and I remember also, very importantly, uh, my pet, or, it sounds like I'm talking about my dog, but my pet means no spice. 
uh, or pet nitnoi means a tiny bit of spice. Very important phrases to know. But to be honest, at my peak, I probably only ever knew double what I've just shared with you right now. But the point of this little language exercise when we learned a couple of phrases before we went to Thailand was not to get fluent. That was never going to happen. And we didn't really need to be fluent for the volunteer work that we were doing over there. But it was helpful for us to learn a handful of phrases as an introduction to the culture. So it was helpful for us. Uh, but it was also helpful for the people that we were meeting in order to, for us to demonstrate to the locals we'd at least made an effort proportional to the work that we were coming to do. Striving for holiness in order to see the Lord is a little bit like that. The holiness that can bring you into God's presence isn't your work. Uh, It's the work of Christ and him alone. Only his sacrifice and his advocacy is sufficient for you to be made holy in a way that can bring you into God's presence. Your own efforts amount to nothing more significant than a couple of cute mispronounced phrases. But... If you are going to see the Lord, wouldn't it be good to get a bit of practice in? Uh, If you want to see the Lord, wouldn't you want to make an effort? If you've been invited and guaranteed to see the Lord, aren't you going to at least try to dress for the occasion? Even if you know you're not going to be good enough, aren't you going to make a bit of an effort? Wouldn't that be normal, logical, loving? So strive to please God, not anxiously, not because your salvation depends upon it, but joyfully and expectantly because of what he's done for you. Strive to please the Lord. And then the apparent contradiction of verse 15 treads a similar sort of a path. Verse 15 says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Well, the point of grace, by definition, is that it is extended to those who fall short who, don't, who can't reach a certain mark, who can't purchase uh, this, uh, this gift for themselves. So is it the case then that the grace of God only extends so far from his own holiness and no further? Well, if so, then how is God's grace any different from our grace? Except that it might reach slightly further because it's God's and he, he's better in every way. But actually, interestingly, you know, I, so I come from a presupposition that God is good and so his, his grace would necessarily be at least better than our grace. But actually, a lot of people in the world come from a very different uh, set of, um, uh, I say presupposition, what's a better word that's uh, uh, assumptions, a, a different set of assumptions, that God's grace is inferior, that God is not a God of grace, but a God who is mean and pernicious and nitpicky. So many people would argue that God's grace extends less far than ours since, for example, uh, promiscuous sexuality, drunkenness, greed, all of these things are admissible by human standards but apparently inadmissible by God's. Uh, In fact, each of these things are celebrated to some extent uh, in our culture where God condemns them. So what's this God of grace you speak of? Doesn't sound very gracious at all if he won't accept these things and... Some people, and, and, it's, and it's left to us to try to obtain his grace. How is that even grace at all? So the answer for this one, I think, uh, appears further down in verse 25 of chapter 12, uh, where it says, um, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Uh, it's talking about having a heart that is hard 
and that refuses God when he speaks to you. So here's the thing. God's grace does extend all the way down the mountain, all the way to those who are sexually promiscuous and drunk and, uh, and greedy and adulterous. It goes all the way down. And there is no place that God in his grace will not go to save a sinful person. But if you meet with God's grace on the way and refuse it, well, it's not that you've come up short and failed to obtain it, it's that you've ignored it and you failed to obtain God's grace. His grace meets you, it comes all the way to wherever you are. You must accept it. And we have to understand God's grace as God defines it. In terms of sin and unholiness, there is nowhere that God in his grace is unwilling to go. God's grace runs all the way down the mountain. But if we sidestep it on its way through and we fail to bend in the direction of God's grace, well, God's grace does have a, have a boundary line. It's not defined by how bad you are or any one terrible thing you've done. His grace extends to the worst of sinners. But the boundary line of grace won't cross a hard heart, a, hard, a heart that persistently dismisses him and turns away from him and without going into detail of uh, of the rest of chapter 12 uh, that is the picture it's painting of uh, of the hebrew people back in the day who were uh, who were hard-hearted who persistently turned away from god in his mercy and grace so let me just say this if you have a sensitive conscience lean into christ for his grace and forgiveness because it comes all the way to you no matter what you've done It's there. And all you need to do to obtain it is receive it. So let's now, with softened hearts and a willing spirit, uh, listen to God's holy demands and strive to meet them. In summary, chapter 13 and dipping back into chapter 12, um, and I'm leaving stuff out as well, but you can read it for yourself and it's quite straightforward, a lot of it. Be peaceful and kind, honour marriage, be content, honour your leaders. And do all this with the help of Christ. Be peaceful and kind. Uh, this does bring us back to chapter 12, verse 14, which, uh, which paired, you might remember uh, back here, uh, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It pairs peace, peacefulness with holiness. Uh, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness. Uh, it's, it's an interesting way to pair things because the Jewish perspective of holiness commands generally gravitated not towards what you do in your moral life, but what you did in your religious life. And they were really good at separating those two. Uh, and so uh, they generally gravitated towards the temple stuff to a to achieve their holiness. So, uh, for example, we make this sacrifice at this time and eat this feast in this way and we tick the right boxes the right way and we will be made holy uh, because that's what God said he will do. And, and, and we can force his hand by just dancing the right steps at the right time. It's not just a Jewish problem. Certain branches of Christianity are prone to a similar gravitational pull. Presbyterianism is one of them. If we can just worship God in utmost purity and justify everything biblically and carefully and the more rigidly and stridently the better, 
then we will have done what God requires and he will be pleased with us. And we tend at times to draw a circle around uh, the things we do in in the hour and a half on church on a Sunday or how we order uh, our lives as a church and try to do that as diligently and carefully as we can and sometimes we can do that at the expense of how we actually approach the rest of our moral existence. And let me say, it is never bad to strive to worship in the way God has ordained in his word. It is actually very important to follow his lead and his word. We must be able to do both, walk and chew gum, do them both at the same time. But those concerns, those concerns of trying to do everything just right and get it just so, can easily become a preoccupation so that things like living peacefully and being kind become secondary. And for a certain kind of person, those concerns can become not just a distraction, but a convenience. Because a certain kind of person, and I'm thinking your bookish kind of person, uh, can find it easier to sit down with a book and interrogate the text and pass the Greek. And it's easier to do all that for a certain kind of person than it is to open your guarded heart or your messy home to another tricky human being. But we should strive for peace and that is hard dirty work jesus said uh, in his sermon on the mount blessed are the peacemakers they will be called sons of god you are exercising uh, god's image in your life by pursuing peace and trying to bring it about in the circles around you have you ever argued uh, with someone who is wrong all the time right they're always wrong Have you ever argued with someone who is wrong? But I mean like those times where you just know for certain they are so wrong and they couldn't be any more wrong because you actually know the truth. But that person just will not be reasoned with. Well, what's more important? What's more important? That they believe the truth as as you're proclaiming it or that you live with that person in peace? Tricky sometimes. It's not always a straightforward answer. It depends a bit on the stakes and the urgency of the matter. So if someone's walking with their eyes shut towards a cliff face, then you don't persuade them, you crash tackle them. And, you know, peace isn't important, but, you know, you save them. But in nearly every other circumstance, peace is the thing to be prioritised. Peace, sometimes even over truth. And one surprising thing about peace is that it's actually surprisingly persuasive so a person you disagree with will almost never change their mind in the course of an argument have you found that but with gentle truth-telling and a commitment for peace in every other way at every other time people will sometimes change their minds they won't always tell you that they've done it they will rarely thank you for uh, for the true things that you said to them along the way but peace is a more more reliable pathway to agreement than argument or nagging and I should say, like, this is tricky. I'm not, I, I'm not meaning to simplify things overly. There is a subtle difference between prioritising peace and always backing down and walking away from matters that demand a courageous or truthful word. There is a difference. But some of us need to be told to speak up and a lot of us need to be told to pursue peace. It's actually more important than you think. And be kind and generous and hospitable. Verse 13, verse 1 says, Let brotherly love continue. In the church, we're to love each other like brothers and sisters should love each other. 
Not how they always do, but how we know brothers and sisters should. Verse 2 says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And then it says something really interesting. This is 13 verse 2. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby, or for in doing so, some have entertained angels unawares. What a curious thing to think. Uh, I guess we'll never know how often this actually happens, that uh, some, that, you know, you've shown hospitality or done a kind deed to someone who turns out in secret to have been an angel. That's a hard thing for me to comprehend. But maybe you remember from our reading of Genesis last term that Abraham and Lot uh, were approached by a troop of angels who appeared to them as travellers. And each man's immediate response was to invite them to a meal, showing them hospitality. And the text in Genesis makes it pretty clear that by the end of their interactions, both Abraham and Lot knew that the men they were dealing with were truly angels and messengers of God. But it's not clear who they thought these guys were when they first rocked up. It just shows two men very quick uh, to show hospitality to a couple of travellers on the road. Uh, The strong impression, we um, they had very itchy trigger fingers when it came to hospitality. It was an important mark of the Jewish faith, since their own heritage was that they had been homeless for a long time, wanderers. Uh, They craved uh, the generosity of the nations around them and rarely got it. And so the mark of the Jewish faith was that uh, they were to then be hospitable uh, to others, remembering the suffering that them and their people had been through. But it continues as an important mark of the Christian church. Since our perspective, which is given to us, uh, really spelled out in the book of Hebrews, our perspective is that on earth there is a sense in which we are just camping out. We are strangers in our own land while we wait to come home to God. And so we should be sympathetic sympathetic to people with little. Uh, Notice that our love and hospitality should be both to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to helpless strangers who have little to offer in return. Uh, It'd be worthwhile uh, at uh, at this stage of the year uh, to do a little inventory of your own hospitality practices. Um, Do you mainly uh, hang out with your non-Christian friends because of their company? Or is your hospitality geared towards networking with the kinds of people who matter or who are easy? Or do you also make a point of spending time with your Christian brothers and sisters, not necessarily because they're the easiest or most natural friends, but because you share with them a common saviour and a common need for strength and courage in this world? Do you look out for the kinds of people who you're unlikely to get anything out of or maybe even unlikely to ever see again? just because you're moved to compassion because of all God has done for you. It's worth just draw a circle around 2023 and think, gee, who did I look out for this year? And see if you can move it a few degrees for 2024. Uh, Honour marriage and the marriage bed. Uh, As is my usual practice, by the way, I accelerate towards the end. So never mind if I take a long time over the first one. Uh, Honour marriage and its bed. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 16, which we read just uh, leading into the message, see to it that no one is sexually immoral. Chapter 13, verse 4 says, let marriage be held in honour among all. So not just the married people, but everyone, honour marriage. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Well, this covers everything from don't cheat, to don't sleep around, to... 
Don't sleep with your serious girlfriend or boyfriend or fiancé. Keep the marriage bed pure. Let the marriage bed be undefiled means save sexual activity only for the person you are married to when you are married to them. Back in chapter 12... Uh, sex outside of marriage is likened to an interesting Old Testament passage. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 16, it says this. It says, See that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. We know nothing about Esau's sexual practices. We know the names of his wives, but we don't know what he got up to. Um, But uh, And this is way back in Genesis as well. Um, But it's likened uh, sexual immorality... With Esau. So, what's what's the story? What's the connection? Well, the story for Esau goes like this. If you don't know it already, that's fine. Just listen. Abraham's son. So, Abraham, way back, he has a son named Isaac. Isaac has two sons, twins: Esau, the one mentioned here in Hebrews, and his younger twin Jacob. Esau's the firstborn, and so by tradition, he's in line to get the family inheritance. And one day, Esau comes home from hunting, and he is starving. And his younger brother Jacob is in the process of cooking a stew. And Esau says, Jacob, give me some stew. And Jacob says, well, what will you give me? And Esau says, I'm so hungry, I could die. Name your price, I will give you anything. Just give me some of that stew. And Jacob says, well, I want your inheritance. And Esau says, Well, what's an inheritance worth if I die now? Sure, take it. I don't care. And then it says at the end of this episode, it's very short. It says these damning words in Genesis chapter 25 that Esau despised his birthright. And then it says almost nothing more about it. But you get this strange impression that what feels like a very trivial sort of exchange has actually condemned Esau in a really serious, irretrievable way. And Hebrews brings it to light a little bit. It goes something like this. When you, um, you know, it is strange and harsh because Jacob is the rat, right? He's the conniving, mischievous one. Um, And Esau just seems a bit, you know, hungry, uh, a bit desperate. But I think the reason is something like this. Esau's act of trading his whole birthright for a single meal is so foolish, so blind as to be sinful. A man who is blinded to the value of his whole inheritance by the smell of a single meal is despicable and irreparably unworthy or something like that. He's, he's done for. There's no hope for a guy who goes about life not treasuring things that are valuable and elevating things that are one and done. And so somehow in the wisdom of the author of this letter in Hebrews, uh, this applies to sex. And it goes like this. Sex is great. But if God says that the sexually immoral won't inherit the kingdom of God and you choose an act of sexual immorality over the kingdom of God, then you have failed to grasp the value of the inheritance. And your poor estimation of value and worth and treasure is so twisted and depraved that you have willfully disqualified yourself. Something like that. Sound harsh? I'm not making this up. But if that is you, repent. 
Remember, the grace of God knows no limits except a hard heart. Repent. Uh, His grace extends to every sin. Be content. Verse 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do whatever you must in your actions, in your head and in your heart to find contentment where you are. Content, your contentment is not dependent on your circumstances. It is dependent on verse 5, the one who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you have him, you have everything. Find a way in your heart to be content. Don't be greedy. And honour your leaders. Now he says quite a bit about this. He says, uh, he starts in verse 7 by saying, remember your leaders. Goes on to say essentially, uh, if your leaders are are worth anything to you, um, then imitate your leaders. The argument goes on uh, to say, your leaders have have a very special role in presenting to you the truth of God's word and the gospel. Uh, And God's word never changes. So don't go chasing changeable things, but value your leaders who hold out God's word and stick to what they say and stick especially to what God's word says. Listen to your leaders, imitate your leaders, submit to your leaders and pray for your leaders. Down in verse 17 and 18. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Please recognise when someone in authority uh, over you uh, has uh, not only your interests at heart, but also a great burden on them to look out for you. Recognise that and appreciate that. Let them do this. Let your leaders... Serve you with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Making life difficult for the people above you needlessly uh, doesn't make life better for you. It can make it more challenging or more uncomfortable. This goes for in church and out of church. I think you will find that, uh, that in church, by and large, our approach to uh, leadership is to persuade with the word of God. Uh, and not to come down hard and invasive into your life. Um, so I don't, I, don't, I don't expect most people to find themselves in, in a tricky position, uh, a particularly tricky one with me uh, or with any of our elders. Uh, but gee, it's, 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 nicer to, uh, it's nicer to look out for people who are willing. Uh, it's just easier and it's better for them. And that's what it says. And, and sorry, this applies just obviously to outside of church as well. It's just a principle, isn't it? If you've got someone in your secular workplace and it's their duty to look out for you, then you can make their life better and yours by doing as they say and, and going with the flow and working hard. And pray for them. Verse 18, pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honourably in all things. You'll come across leaders who 
may have a clear conscience but they might be deceived, aren't necessarily seeking to act honourably, we'll pray for them as well. They need repentance, but pray for us. And do all of this with the help of Christ. I'm going to read chapter 13, verses 20 to 25. Uh, The last few verses are really just a closing out, but 20, 20 and 21 are the key ones here. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Short version. May the God of peace equip you with everything you need by his grace. We do all this with his help. Verses 22 to 25, let's read it for completion. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Well, brevity is relative, isn't it? It's quite a long letter. Uh, You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. It's helpful just to remember these are people writing in real settings and real contexts. But verses 20 and 21, may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Uh, probably you've been here on a Sunday when we've welcomed someone new into membership and we have this, uh, this series of questions that we ask them, do you, do you, do you? There's eight questions in all and, and they sound pretty intense. Um, but if you're familiar at all with the Bible, you realise that they're only asking, are you, are you going to try to be a Christian person? Are you trying to follow God's word where it leads you? But it can feel when you're confronted in front of a bunch of people committing to this quite lofty goal of what a life should look like, uh, it's, you can feel self-conscious. And so it's really nice to have this question seven thrown in right towards the end. Do you acknowledge your dependence upon the Holy Spirit to equip you and enable you uh, to be faithful to this, your confession? Do you acknowledge that all of this, to the extent that you do it well, you only do it with his help and by his strength? Well, that's a good thing to remember. May the God of peace equip you uh, to do his will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder that we are made holy really only by your work, by the gift of your Son who gave himself. And because of what he has done, uh, we can hope to meet with you. Father, help us uh, to, uh, from that place of, of gratitude and of worship, to also pursue holiness, uh, to seek to please you where we can. Uh, to try to be good, to live according to, uh, to your rules and instructions because we trust you that your way is best and right and that even if uh, living your way doesn't work out for us uh, in terms of immediate um, treasure, uh, we know that we are living for the world to come. God, we uh, ask that you'll help us to be generous and hospitable, help us to be kind to our brothers and sisters, uh, help us to live lives that are sexually pure. And God, forgive us for our sins and help us to do all that is right in your strength and the power of your spirit. Amen.